Thank you, Pastor Marlene. <clears throat> I always appreciate Marlene's prayers. As you open the Bible this morning, I want to invite you to open to Mark chapter 5. I'm going to be beginning, in, beginning at, chapter, at verse 21 and um, carrying out through the rest of that passage. So if you're getting out your device, you're looking for that. If you're uh, trying to figure out where it is in the text, remember Mark is one of the New Testament uh, books. So New Testament begins about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. begins with the book of Matthew. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So it's that second New Testament book. You'll find it, oh, about that much through your Bible. Uh, <clears throat> the story that we're going to look at today is a familiar one for a lot of us. But uh, I just, as I was praying and seeking what to to preach about this week, this passage just uh, uh, came at me with some some new pieces. Uh, when we were in, the, in our study of Matthew a while back, uh, this was we covered it back. It's been probably a year ago. But I wanted to go a little deeper. I wanted to walk through some things in it that we didn't get to touch before. And I want to start by saying where we are, as we open this and we start reading this passage, the Bible tells us that this story really began 12 years before. This is the city of Capernaum. It's not a big city. It's it's large enough by standards of its time. But in terms of our time, in terms of our understanding, it's not that big of a city. It's, um, you know, a few thousand people, which again, large for a first century town, but not a lot by our standard. So a lot of the folks there knew one another. There were socioeconomic classes that sort of blended them together. And there are two families in probably the same or nearly the same socioeconomic class that get some news in this year, the 12 years before. Um, on one side of town, one side of Capernaum, we don't know which side, it's probably uh, somewhere near the synagogue, which is kind of in the middle of the town. It's still there. The ruins of it are still there. It's a beautiful thing to see. It's probably right in Peter's neighborhood, right near where Peter lives as well. A young family is in the midst of the greatest experience a parent can ever have. A child is being delivered to their home. A little baby girl is being born. And as she arrives that day, all of the joys and all of the, the, the passions that arise in that moment are flooding into this family. If you think about it, um, these babies were all born at home. So all of the travail of childbirth is experienced by everyone in the home. Um, the, the, the wailing, the, the, the concern, the, the delivery, the cry, the first cry of the baby, the announcements, it's a girl. They begin to ritually wipe her down, clean her off, rub salt over her to uh, then begin to wrap her in the first clothes she will wear, hand her to her mother, hand her to her father. You know what those moments of celebration are like. Even if you're the auntie or the uncle and you've never had children of your own, you've held that new baby. You've held that family's, uh, that family's uh, uh, next generation in your hands. And that's who they are. They're, they're experiencing this birth, this new generation of their family with all of the joy and all of the excitement. The birth of love they didn't know existed moments ago has now arrived at Jairus's heart. The, the, the final step of this pregnancy has arrived in the life of his wife and she finally holds this baby that she's been nurturing and nourishing all this these months. And on the other side of town, an incident that could go easily overlooked, really, um, it's a woman. Again, probably in the same socioeconomic class. They may actually know one another. It's 
pretty likely they're at least aware of each other. And for her, something else has just happened. Sometime in that year, it, 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 I don't know that it's the same day, it would be an interesting, weird biblical coincidence, but sometime in that year, 12 years before what we're going to read about, she notices a little blood. It's, it's weird because it's out of timing. It's not the right time. It's out of cycle with what should be happening. And it doesn't alarm her really. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those things. It happens. And at first it's just, okay, well, uh, I don't know why I'm off, but I'm off and, you know, this will, this will soon pass. And a day or two go by and she's not really thinking about it. She's just handling it. A week goes by and she's starting to be concerned and ten days in or so she reaches out to a friend and says, hey, I need to talk to you about something. They gather a couple of the older ladies in the church, uh, the midwives and the, in the community and the midwives and they, they come and they have a little visit. They talk about what's going on and there's some ideas. There's some suggestions. And so she begins a process. Twelve year long process begins that day of trying to sort out how to stop this issue of blood. Soon she will go to doctor, the first one, and he'll have some ideas. He'll also tell her, this might work, and she'll try that, and it'll fail. She will uh, check every toll booth on the road of this torment through the shadow, the valley of the shadow of death. Every time... She has to pay someone, a doctor, somebody who says that they have the cure, some, some, uh, some well-meaning person who says, if you'll just eat these herbs or drink this oil or rub your body down with this stuff or go take a mud bath or a salt bath or a whatever bath and nothing works. And she's paid the toll 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 until she has nothing left to pay. When we arrive... At this day, both the family with the child and the woman with the issue are in desperation. It's a Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 5. It starts out this way, pretty innocuously in verse 21. Now when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a great multitude gathered to him. And he was by the sea. The other side here is back to Capernaum. And behold, one of the rulers of the synagogue came. Jairus by name. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and begged him earnestly, saying, My little daughter lies at the point of death. Come, lay your hands on her, that she may be healed and that she will live. First, I want to just explain this. Jairus is no ordinary person in this community. This little girl has grown up in a recognized family. She's grown up in a, a, a locally famous family. It's, you know, it's that little bit of celebrity that goes along with certain roles. And as the leader of the synagogue, he's the guy in charge of what happens at the synagogue. Who speaks, who doesn't speak, who comes, who doesn't come, the activities that are allowed inside. He's in charge of making sure the building is maintained, the contents are cared for and protected from thieves. He is the man. He is the president of the synagogue. 
Everything about what happens in that church's life goes through him. He's probably not a rabbi. He's probably not paid. He's sort of like a, a head deacon of a church. He, he's the one who has the keys. He's the one who decides things. He's maybe head deacon, head elder all in one person. Or you, you can kind of picture him as you think of volunteers in the church. But he's the person through whom everything flows. Everybody in town knows who he is. Everybody who goes to that synagogue knows who he is. And he's a cut above. He's revered by people in the town. For him to walk up to this Galilean rabbi, this guy from up the hill in Nazareth, this hillbilly rabbi at best, and fall on his knees and beg him for something is pretty astonishing because all of his prestige is now on its knees. All of his office has fallen to the ground. Everything about him that that creates stature in the community is gone as he begs this guy, this carpenter, this, this somebody from somewhere that is nobody for anybody and he's on his knees in front of him begging. He's desperate. And that's what I want you to get today. I want you to understand that he's desperate. He's desperate because his little girl, whom he has cared for and played with and nurtured and enjoyed for a dozen years, who's watched her go from infant to a, to a, 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 just the, just the very, very edge, the bridge that leads to womanhood. She's 12 years old and he can see her mother in her. She can, he can see her catching up with her mother in her height. He can hear his wife's voice as she speaks. He's beginning to recognize as she moves around the house, this young woman that is blossoming in front of his eyes and she's about to die. They've waited. They've tried. They've done some of the things that the woman has done. They've gone to doctors. They've asked people for help. People have come in. They've, they've tried different things. They've prayed. They lay, they've laid down hands. They've oiled her down with things and she just isn't getting it. She just isn't recovering. She's getting worse and worse and worse. And everybody in the house, mom, dad, friends, family, doctors, specialists, whomever they can afford, everybody they know is looking at her and saying she won't last another day. The news drifts through town that Jesus is in town. Jesus has been to the synagogue. He knows who he is. The rumors of his abilities have been around for a while now. And with no other option, he decides to come to Jesus. He has very specific instructions for Jesus. Come to my house. Lay your hands on my daughter that she may live. Jesus stops what he's doing beside the sea. He stops the church service, the prayer meeting, the whatever is going on by the sea with everybody else. And he goes with him. And a great multitude of those people gathered by the sea follow. It strikes me this morning that Jesus stops for desperation. Sometimes we feel like if we come to Jesus in desperation, we've waited too long. If we wait till we're desperate, He's not going to be interested in helping us because we've waited too long. We've 
We've tried everything else before we tried Jesus. And the synagogue ruler would certainly be in that class. I would bet there's been times when there's been confrontations between the two of them when he didn't let Jesus speak. When he didn't let Jesus have the pulpit in Capernaum. He would be the guy. And you don't hear about Jesus preaching in that synagogue much. You don't hear about Jesus being there doing things much. Most of his preaching is done on the hillsides and the seaside around the city. And now this man who is the gatekeeper holding back the message is desperate enough to come and see him. And Jesus goes with him. Big group of people are following through the little narrow streets of Capernaum. And a certain woman who had an issue of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from physicians. She had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. Verse 28 is an interesting statement. For she said, I'm pretty sure she didn't say this out loud. She said to herself, she had that thought, it crossed her mind. She said, if I only may touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Massive group of people moving through a space probably as wide as the center aisle of a church. Disciples there sort of acting like the, the CIA around the president. Trying to keep people back, trying to keep the, the group moving. Jairus trying to hurry them along. And this woman somehow sneaks up from behind him. Not a very good CIA group. How they let her sneak through the crowd and get up behind him and actually touch him? What if she had some reason for doing something wrong? What if, what if she was up to no good? As she touches the edge of his garment, the Bible says, Mark says, immediately the fountain of her blood was dried up and she fell, she felt in her body that she was healed. Again, this is desperation. Just like Jairus, she has tried everything else. And now broke, anemic, struggling to get through every day. All of her clothes are bloodstained. All of her friends have drifted away because of her uncleanness. She's not been able to go to the synagogue for years. That same guy would keep her out of the synagogue because she's unclean. Their lives collide here on the streets in the presence of Jesus with their mutual desperation over what they've experienced. There's no place else to go. And is somewhere inside of her is born this idea that if she could just get close enough to touch the edge of his clothes. You know, there's no magic in the clothes, right? There's no magic in Jesus' clothes. Otherwise, they would have hung on to him by now and we'd all be touching him. It's not the one who wears the clothes. It's the one inside that matters. And she 
touches the hem of his garment, just touches the edge of his clothes. And everything goes. Like electric shock through her body. She can feel the difference. She knows immediately that she's healed. She begins to drift away and let the crowd move on. She's trying her best to disappear again. Healed as she may be, she doesn't want to make a stink. She doesn't want to draw attention. She has been hiding in the corners and the shadows on the edge of town for the longest time. She's not wanting to jump out in front of people now and say, oh, by the way, now I'm better. But she can feel it. Because something has just changed in her life. Something has flowed through her. The next moment is weird. The next moment in the passage is weird because, because Jesus could have, knowing what had just happened, kept moving. There's no reason for him not to. He could have just kept moving, just kept walking on down the road. She's healed, she's better, he knows she's healed, she knows she's healed. They just continue on, but he doesn't do it. He, he stops. The Bible says, he stops and he asks the disciples, who touched me? Now, Mark doesn't tell us, Luke will tell us, that Peter asks, Lord, what are you talking about? Man, everybody's touching you. Look around you. There's there's a hundred people here crowded within arm's reach of you. Everybody's touching you. What do you mean, who touched you? Jesus says, no, 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 no. Something special just happened. I felt power. I felt the authority of heaven. I felt the, the, the strength to cure illness leave my body and go into someone somebody else touched me it wasn't an ordinary touch it was the touch of faith it was the touch of desperation it was a touch of someone who needed something to change in their life and he begins to scan stops the whole procession stops Jairus who's in such a hurry a desperate hurry and she who has tried to just disappear steps to the front and makes herself known to Jesus. And Jesus' words to her are interesting. You ever read a passage in the Bible and you go, why did that happen? The Bible says the woman, verse 33, trembling and knowing what had happened, came and fell down before him. Isn't it interesting? They both find the same position in front of Jesus. They both, when they come, come to Jesus with their desperation, fall on their knees. She falls down before him. And she told him the whole truth. And I'm pretty sure Jairus didn't want to hear the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well. But, but, but Jesus, I, I didn't come because of faith. I, I came because I had no other choices. I came because there was nothing else I could do. I was out of money, out of ideas, and my, my life is literally ebbing away. You see, no one even knows my name. I'm just the woman who's bleeding. I'm just the woman with the issue. Some of us feel that way, right? Some of us feel like we're just the person with the issue. We're defined by our problem. That's just, that's the drug addict. That's, that's that womanizer. That's, 
that's, that's, that's. And the issue has become our name and we're dismissed by it from other people. We're placed on the edges of our, our culture and our society because of the issue. That's what's happened. Twelve years with this have placed her on the fringes, on the edge of society. She's not allowed to mingle with people. One, she's a woman. That's bad enough. But two, she's a woman who has an issue of blood. And when she has an issue of blood, she is unclean. And she is not to be around anyone. She is not to touch anyone. She's not to sit on their furniture. She's not to be in their house. She's not to be in the sanctuary. She's not to be in the synagogue. She's not to be on the streets in a crowd like this, touching a man who's holy like that. She falls on her knees. And Jesus looking down at her, he says, your faith has made you whole. Go in peace. Be healed of your affliction. And I spent some time trying to look at these Greek words, be healed of your affliction, and understand if he adds anything to the story, and, and maybe there's a little. She already knows she's been healed. She's off. She's done. She's going to take care of this. She already knows she's been healed. What new information is he conveying to her? I think there's two things. Number one, he's telling her it's by faith. You've been healed not because of of your your desperation, not because you finally reached some magic trick, not because of something that happened here today. It wasn't the touching of the garment that healed you. It was the faith you had. That thought that rose in your mind that said, if I could just reach Jesus, I'd be okay. If I could just get to Jesus, I'll be okay. She's ashamed that it's the desperate last move. He's glad that it's finally happened. You see, desperation is not a disqualifying offense. God believes in deathbed confessions. Desperation is not a disqualifying offense. God believes in in the least, the slightest modicum of faith. God desires that we would step in, in our ignorance, in our dis, dis, distorted thinking, in our misunderstanding, just step into the relationship. Come back to trust. What was lost in the Garden of Eden regained in that moment with her in a, in a tiny little way. She thinks she's here because she's desperate. Jesus knows the desperation has made her trust even just a little Your faith has made you whole. But did you catch what he said to her first? This woman who doesn't have a name, I mean, no one names her. Matthew, Mark, Luke all cover this story. No one tells us her name. Now maybe it's because they want to protect her. Maybe it's because they don't want other people to know that this woman has had 12 years of an issue of blood and somehow pushed her to the edge of society in in the Christian realm, in the church realm. I don't know. But when Jesus speaks to her, the first thing he says is daughter. Daughters, daughters have fathers. Daughters have families. 
Daughters are loved. Daughters have a place. Daughters belong. Daughters are connected. Daughter. By faith, daughter. Lost on the sideline. Kicked to the curb. Daughter. I claim you. You're mine. You're my family. You belong. You're no longer alone. Daughter. They're both daughters. The little girl is the daughter of a, of a wealthy family, a, a daughter of, a daughter of stature. Even at 12, she's not an ordinary kid, she's the daughter of Jairus. People expect great things of her. People wish they were born into such a family. A family of means, a family of import, a family with title. It's funny because on one hand, this woman is known only by her issue. This man is really hidden from us as well. We know his name, but all we know about him is what he does. Isn't it funny how the world buries you on what you do, buries you behind what you do? Your job defines who you are. Your job causes you to be lost to an understanding of a life, of a family, of a person. Your personhood disappears into your role. And Jairus is the ruler of the synagogue. That's the most important thing you need to know about him. You can forget all the rest. You can forget about him having a wife and a child. You can forget about him having a heart that's breaking for this little girl. You can forget about anything else about him except that he's the man in charge of the doors of the church. Jairus. This story is about a lot of things. It's about, it's about daughters. At the bottom rung. Right at this moment when Jesus is pulling this woman back into relationship. While he is saying this to her, your faith has made you well. Somebody comes up, grabs Jairus by the arm and says... Your daughter is dead. This daughter is born into her family and that daughter has died. This, this woman, outcast, homeless, marginalized, unclean, female, worth nothing to society. has just been brought into Jesus' family. And this little girl, the central figure in Jairus' life, the next generation of his family, who has so much ahead of her, so much to live for, has died. If you don't catch this in the story, you miss the story. If you don't catch this moment, you miss the whole point of Mark telling you the story, of Matthew telling you the story, of Luke telling you the story. There is a a collapsing of culture. There's a collapsing of society. There's a collapsing of people's identities in this moment because desperation brings all people from all classes to Jesus. 
And if the wealthy man could ever tell you anything about himself in this moment, he would give everything he has, his stature, his reputation, his finances, his home, everything he has to rescue this girl. That's why he could fall on his knees in front of Jesus, because he's desperate. And he's just heard the one bit of news that he never wanted to hear. Don't bother the teacher any further. She's dead. Jairus is apparently very close to Jesus in proximity at this moment because my Bible says, as soon as Jesus heard those words, as soon as Jesus heard those words spoken, he turns to the ruler, he gathers him close, he gets his attention, he says to him, hold on, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Just believe. He had just heard this woman's story. It just played out in front of him. He had just heard seconds ago, daughter, your faith has made you well. Jesus now turns to him and says, hold on, don't believe it. Don't believe she's dead. Don't let that carry you. Don't let let that win the day. Trust me. Have faith. Only believe. Don't cry. Don't worry. Just trust me. Come on. Let's go to your house. Jesus tells the rest of the crowd to stay there. He takes Peter, James, and John, and they head for the house. When they arrive at the house, the prayers, those who had gathered round in a desperate last hope of prayer for her, leaders in the church, leaders in the community, people of standing, there at his house, The prayers have gone to wailing. They've begun to cry. They've begun to weep. They've begun to go through the ritual of death that brings wailing and flutes and a bizarre way of counting the end of a person's life. Bizarre to us, normal to them. And as Jesus, this Jairus, and a couple of disciples arrive at the door, They're greeted by this menagerie of brokenness. Another group of desperate people who believe they've heard the last from this girl. He arrives. He tells everybody she's not dead. She's not dead. Words that would please Jairus' ears. Words that would break his wife's heart. She's not dead. I just saw her take her last breath. She's not dead. We all saw her stop breathing. She's not dead. She no longer has a pulse. She's not dead. She's going cold. She's not dead. She's getting stiff. She's not dead. She's not dead. Because the authority of God has said, this is not the outcome of this day. When God decides you're not dead, You're not dead. Lazarus, four days in the tomb? He's asleep because God said, come out. Jesus, three days in the tomb? Dead. But not dead because God said, come out. See, God has authority over death. And in this moment, he's asking Jairus and his wife to just hang on, just cling to the hope that is in that concept, in that idea that God 
has the power over life and death. She's not actually dead. You guys think she is. And they begin to laugh. Every one of the records of the story says they begin to laugh. They laugh in Jesus' face. He throws them all out of the house. It's one of my favorite parts of the moment. That's maybe my favorite part in the whole story. Maybe beyond this word daughter, which I did not see until what Thursday? How did I miss it till then? Kicks them out of the house. They go into the place where the little girl is laying. She is, in fact, starting to cool. She is, in fact, starting to get blue. She is, in fact, not breathing. But that form, with all the pieces that Adam had inside his body, is about to meet its maker. You know, some, some of us need to let our DNA meet Jesus. Some of us need to let the history of our family's abuses meet Jesus. Some of us need to let the practices that have been destroying our lives meet Jesus. Some of us need to come to Jesus and just give over whatever it is that we don't think we can get past. There on that table are all the necessary parts for life except for the breath of life and the one who holds that is in the room. He turns to this little daughter. He turns her attention, his attention and focuses on her. And he, he speaks Aramaic. It's interesting that it's recorded that way in every one of the texts. It's in Aramaic. He speaks in Aramaic to her. He says, Talitha kum. It's, it's, it's similar in Greek. It's, it's similar in other places. But it's this sweet, kind way to speak to a child to a desperate woman with an issue. He says, daughter. With the broken body of a little girl, when the spark of life goes through her and her ears awaken to sound, the master chooses the words, little girl, arise. Little girl, come on, get up. The Bible says, at that moment, she came back to life. The problem with these stories for some of you who have been Christians a long time is that you've heard it and you've heard it and you've heard it and you've you've kind of missed it. We read through the text and we forget the heartbroken parents. We read read through the text and we miss the gentleness of Jesus. We read through the text and somehow, somehow 
it becomes flat and it becomes one-dimensional and no longer carries the, the depth of the touch that was intended to touch us. Because all of us have issues. Everybody has issues. You have issues, I have issues. All of us have issues. All of us are sons and daughters. Every single one of us are sons and daughters. And I just want to say to you, desperation is not a disqualifying offense. It is just the opposite. Desperation is the most well-worn path there is to Jesus. Desperation is the most well-worn path there is to Jesus. If you're familiar with the New Testament text, people are coming to Jesus on their last leg. At the end, they, they don't know what else to do, so they go to Jesus and He takes them in and He takes that tiny seed of faith and He nurtures and lifts it and builds on that tiny little bit an occurrence beyond their wildest imagination. The, the restoration of life. The restoration of health. Eyes that have never seen see. Legs that have never walked, walk. Because in desperation, they said, could you help? I have no one else to ask. I have nowhere to go. A man is laying by a pool and he says, I can't get in the pool. No one will put me in. And Jesus says, would you like to walk? Would you, would you like to be healed? Well, of course. A blind man is sitting beside the road calling out to him. He says, what does you want? I, I, I'd like to see. And he takes those little prayers of desperation. And he fills them with the power of Almighty God. Breathes into them the breath of life and they're restored. Desperation is the most well-worn path to Jesus. If you go back and you read the Old Testament stories, once, twice, thirty. 5,000 times God says to Israel, though you are at the end of my patience, though you have gone out and claimed Baal was the one who was taking care of you, though you have even sacrificed your children to these pagan gods, if you will turn back to me in this moment when I am telling you the Assyrians or the Babylonians or the Philistines or whomever is coming, when you, in this moment when destruction is on the door, if you will turn to me even in this last moment of desperation, if you will come back to me, even here I will save you. He's not worried about desperation being your reason. He just wants an excuse to help you. I don't know who you are today. I don't know who's watching. But I can tell you, God desperately wants to get you home. He is as desperate to save you as you are to be rescued. He is as desperate to see you come through the gates of heaven as you are to see them. He may be more desperate than you and I because He understands the stakes so much more than we do. See, we only know a life that's this little bit of time and He knows a life that's possible in eternity, he, we only know a life where sin dominates, where pain is real, where, where death is a common thing. We only know this, and Jesus says there's so much more. I am desperate to show it to you. I'm desperate to give it to you. I'm desperate for you to turn to me and ask for it. So no matter what your issue might be, no matter what role you're buried under, 
No matter how desperate you feel today, I want to encourage you to bring it back to Jesus, to come home to him, to step into the crowd and touch him. Step in and pray. Step out and ask. Fall down in front of your friends if you have to. and Humble yourself before him if that's what it takes. But I'm telling you, he's more interested in saving you than you are in being saved. Let's pray. Father God, all of us have worn some of the steps on that path when we just couldn't find it in ourselves to face tomorrow one more time, to face the discouragement, to face the defeat, to face the problem again. Some of us have found your grace, your love at the end of that desperation. I pray for those who haven't, who think their issue is too big of an issue, who think they're so far behind the cover of their role that no one knows who they are, not even you. I pray for each person who can hear this, the courage to discover the joy of touching the hem of your garment of the least, tiniest little bit of faith reaching out. Lord, I pray that you would take it. I pray that they would risk it. And I pray that the reunion, the the restoration, would be the work of miracles and the testimony for generations. Lord, thank you for these little stories that speak so deeply to your children. Amen.